Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. A um, few things I have to say. One is we personally are involved both as a lifestyle, a ketogenic diet, but also through my 16 years of clinical practice of what is effective. What do people need to take sometimes, all the time, to support their ketogenic diet? You'll get bits and pieces of this ongoing week after week. It's important to be comprehensive. In one way, it's simple. and one way, it's a little bit complicated. Hi, welcome back to the next episode of the Keto Naturopath. This is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. Today, I'm going to open up a topic that I'll probably have to follow up on on sub- subsequent podcasts because I find it very relevant to anybody who's on keto and it could be applicable to both men and women. Let me tell you how I came to think about this topic differently in the course of my experience as a physician and um, going through a ketogenic diet and helping people with their various situations get started and explore the ketogenic diet. So this particular condition is called polyovary syndrome. And it's not a new syndrome. It, oh, I don't know when it was first diagnosed, probably 50 to 100 years ago. And what is interesting is that through, so I went through medical school in the 90s, and even in the 90s, and what this is, this is about women, and it's a number of symptoms that I will read in a second, but I'm going to give you my over my simple, oversimplified summary of this is that I have always considered this uh, an insulin problem syndrome, and I think everybody else did as well. Uh, I didn't think, I didn't think uh, 20 years ago or 15 years ago when I started practicing more or less, or a few years of practicing, that this was hyperinsulinemia associated, meaning consistently high levels of insulin. I probably didn't know that much about it at that point, but the primary concern for women to come to seek your help, in my case as a naturopathic physician, was because uh, they couldn't get pregnant. So that was the number one driving symptom that I saw from PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome. And uh, But other syndromes, other symptoms are infertility is number one is they can't ovulate, um, they don't cycle, or they have very, very irregular cycles. They sometimes get male-associated hair growth, meaning a mustache, acne, male pattern baldness, obesity, they can't sleep well, sleep apnea, enlarged ovaries, multiple cysts, and so on. They, When you test their blood, their sex hormones, you'll find generally, and there's plenty of studies on this, that they'll have elevated levels of androgens. So you have DHEA, testosterone, and and others. And the highest correlation with PCOS is with hyperinsulinemia. So all that I've told you so far is not new. And you can have other cofactors that other things that are associated with PCOS. But um, as I said, 15, 20 years ago, it was way more than expected, suspected, um, it was assumed that they were pre-diabetic or someplace they had uh, a glucose problem. And, and back then, it was very easy to diagnose everybody. And it's a diagnosis code of saying, oh, they're dysglycemic, meaning that they don't, they have problems with glucose. So glycemic is glucose. And uh, so you kind of defaulted to that sort of diagnosis. You know, it was a safer place to to go to hyperinsulinemia means that 
you as a physician had tested at some point their insulin. And you probably gave them a glucose tolerance test with insulin. Um, and so insulin, which only now is starting to be tested more commonly, was not tested very, very commonly before. You tested people's glucose. That was a standard test, fasting glucose. I think everybody knows that now, right? Um, and all those testing, glucose testing has become much more sophisticated. Um, it's pretty much required to test insulin now if you're really thinking about insulin resistance or the opposite of, you know, what is their insulin sensitivity. And there's a number of ways you can do that. And I don't believe there's a definitive test. Some people, when they talk about what is the test for insulin resistance, it's called H-O-M-A-I-R. Forgot what the acronym stood for, but uh, you don't necessarily even need to go that far. Your triglycerides and HDL and glucose numbers should be very helpful. So that's where we are in that. We're developing. How do you develop? How do you test? How do you develop? How do you know about insulin? Not so much glucose. The problem about glucose testing only is people can have normal levels of glucose. You just don't know how much insulin they're having to secrete on a regular basis to give you normal levels. So some people have to secrete from the pancreas, you know, two to four to, I'll make it up, five to ten times as much insulin as somebody else. But if you just looked at their glucose, you say, oh, you're in the normal range. You're okay. You're in the normal range. You're okay. But somebody who has to do five times or ten times more insulin to produce to get those normal numbers, because remember that insulin brings down your glucose. If your glucose is too high, it shoves it off into fat cells. And those fat cells initially are just fat cells. Sometimes it goes into then muscle. So you have an organ. You have fatty liver, fatty pancreas, fatty muscles, and so on. Even fatty heart muscle. So that's where that, th that goes. So that's the value of insulin. And it's chronically high levels of insulin called hyperinsulinemia. Simply means chronically high insulin. Okay. Uh, the reason I say that, some people say I use too many jargon words, so I'm just giving you that when you break down medical terminology, it's just baby talk. Multiple syllable, multiple syllabic baby talk. Okay, so why do I find this interesting? Because I thought I was a pretty current and uh, alternative physician, and I looked at the whole dysglycemia approach to a PCOS is what I'm going to call it from now on. And I think I fell short a lot. I got some improvements. Uh, women wanted to get pregnant. Their husbands wanted them to get pregnant. And if you achieve that, that was fine. But I think that having achieved that, and then we'd look at a lot of factors. I didn't just look at the sugar thing, uh, the glucose, but I could have really helped them by implementing a ketogenic diet and saying, this is where we're going to start. By far, that's the most effective thing top of the list would be top of the list right now is we're just going to talk about the ketogenic diet and we would spend a couple of appointments talking about that. That's looking back and what I would do now with what I know now. Okay. So what we looked back then, I told you it was associated with hyperinsulinemia and what the various forms are. And, and what's interesting is his elevated androgen levels appear in part due to the uh, chronically high level of insulin which triggers increase in androgen production. That would drive the mustache. That would drive the 
inability, infertility. Thus, any intervention, this is from a medical book or a good alternative medical book by Dr. Alan Gaby, interventions to improve insulin resistance may reverse some of the manifestations of PCOS. So it says it right here. And we were all thinking of this too. And so now we're given, and the ketogenic diet's 100 years old. So what I'm saying is there was a big piece that was missing then that was not so secret. This was clearly being explored on TV. We've talked about in the history and the evolution of the ketogenic diet, how in 1993-94, Jim Abrams on TV, on Nightline, uh, talked about the ketogenic diet for his son, Charlie, and hence the Charlie Foundation was established from that. So it was out. So somehow how I missed all this, how we missed all this, uh, I have no idea, but it was a big miss and is a big method of treatment. Um, what is interesting both then and now is that if you go into a conventional medical doctor for PCOS, you probably won't hear anything about the ketogenic diet. Sorry, that's still a very rare uh, doctor's office. I'll bring that up, but it's less rare than it was 20 years ago. But they will consider putting you on metformin, which is a diabetic medication. And metformin, what that does, that stops your glucose production from your liver. So that basically impedes or blocks or severely reduces your glucagon. So the mechanism is that it drops your glucose. Therefore, it's like eating less glucose. That means the only glucose that would be available is from what you've brought in through the carbs you're eating. So you've forced a lower glucose. And by forcing a lower glucose, you're going to force a lower need for insulin. So that's the way it's tackling. But the point is, even back then, that they were using a diabetic drug to address a PCOS. And so this, the signs were there. I mean, if we're doing that, then why don't we consider the whole ball of wax and the ketogenic diet? Or they say it never happened. Other medications they give are pretty desperate in my in my words. They give um, clomiphene citrate, which is, induces ovulation, uh, spironolactone, which is an anti-androgen. So it's not real creative. It's just medications that are thwarting the, I always say, the symptoms and the signs of what's happening. So it's no real cure. It's just blocking that idea. The diabetic diet back 20 years ago was small, more frequent meals. That was the whole idea. And so they weren't working for a lower glucose per se. They were looking for a consistent level. So they were trying to stop the up and down to have it pretty consistent. That was the goal back then. Now, uh, with all the ketogenic diet is like, you know, let's just get away from glucose. Let's just not even bother. And so now, as people do get into a ketogenic diet or a ketogenic way of eating or lifestyle, however you want to phrase it, some are just eating one meal a day out of desire only. And some are doing zero carb, which is uh, primarily meat and fish and chicken and so on and so forth, uh, fat as well. But usually the fat is in the protein that they're eating. So their life has gotten very simple and they've had a number of successful outcomes. A lot of times, unfortunately, it's still at the anecdotal stage, meaning there is no formal research arm that is documenting all these cases. The NIH is not involved. Uh, the research you have so far are from various universities, but they're studying uh, usually in rat models and so on and so forth. So on the human side of things, it's basically 
groups of people deciding to establish their own way of eating and documenting their own uh, life. So from that, and there are, if you go on to PubMed, you'll find some uh, meta studies, which are small studies that are about this. But uh, the stories are incredible. And this is where these things start. So that's sort of hitting how today I would approach PCOS on the hyperinsulinemia part. And it's a big part. And it might be the only thing I have to do. So if I was a physician, I didn't know anything, and I just came out of medical school, and I wanted to make my break, and all I was going to do is teach people the ketogenic diet, there's so many different conditions that I could treat that are directly related to, would directly benefit from the ketogenic diet. So that makes it very special. And that is so unusual. It's just not like it's, you know, it's this, it just doesn't work that way in medicine. Usually when a patient comes in, your mind has to scatter to what metabolically is wrong with this patient. Where can you intervene to get the biggest bang for your buck, so to say? That is, you're going to ask them to do something about the metabolism. You're probably going to prescribe some supplements and um, try to intervene with some sort of life, quote unquote, lifestyle modifications, right? That's diet and exercise. And if you were smart, you'd focus on sleep as well. But I don't think 20 years ago, people were focusing much on sleep or they weren't getting the headlines, I should say. So that's where we'd focus on. Right now, this new physician that I'm making up could just knock it out of the park. And uh, if he was next to me and practicing 20 years ago, I'd be wondering how can he get such good success by doing the same thing for everybody? And I would think, perhaps in my ignorance, that he was Obviously, I would research it, and, and and I would be open to, I would hope I'd be open to what he's doing, but I'd consider him perhaps a quack. For, for one person to do, for one physician, to do one thing, to have benefits in so many different aspects, that's what makes people not believe you. They go, no, 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 I can understand if you did this one thing and you're successful in this one category of, of patients, that's reasonable, but to think that you're going to help people with Oh, height and weight, sleep and epilepsy and mental clarity and ADHD for children, infertility, obesity. I could go on and on. It's just you'd, you'd stop listening. You'd say, I, I have to distance myself from this particular person. They're getting to be a zealot and they probably don't even know where their medical books are anymore. So that was that. So now we're now we're moving in. But I wanted to share also is that some of the supplements that I would have prescribed back then, and they're all pointing towards helping the person gain insulin sensitivity. In other words, move away from from a high level of, of insulin to a lower level of insulin. And the only way you would do that is by, one, controlling your amount of glucose. So if you have lower glucose on a regular basis, your insulin can start to relax. But the other way to do it, and it's usually the, the main way to do it is usually when a person has had a chronically high flight of glucose that they've had to put, be making more and more insulin over time. And so if you just brought those glucose numbers down and kept them down for a while, it would still take your body a while, more than a couple months perhaps even a year, but it would happen gradually for your body to believe that you are actually not needing a lot of insulin to keep your blood sugar down. So that would be a change that would be happening in the background, and that could be done primarily by diet. 
uh, ketogenic. Uh, what we prescribed back then was the gly low glycemic, which means low insulin producing diet. So if you had uh, lettuce, a salad versus white bread, the white bread obviously would give a lot of glucose. You'd see, you'd be able to see that in your glucose meter, your glucometer, uh, within an hour afterwards, and your carbs from your lettuce salad would not. So that's low glycemic versus glycemic. However, the problem with the, the glycemic, low glycemic diet by itself, and you can go online and look up what that is, and you'll see it's a whole list of what's high glycemic, what's low glycemic. So meats and things are low glycemic and carbs are high. So the problem is you have things like dairy. So dairy is not necessarily a high glycemic. In fact, it's not high glycemic at all. But dairy is a high insulinogenic, meaning it actually can make independently from glucose your insulin to go up. And you say, well, wait a minute. I thought this whole approach, we're talking about PCOS now and all the other conditions that ketogenic diet helps, but... We're saying, why would somebody be taking dairy if it's going to increase my insulin? And the whole approach has been about decreasing your insulin. It's about dropping the hyperinsulinemia to making normal insulin levels. Well, that's the question to ask. That's absolutely the question to ask. And that's the problem with dairy. To go on a tangent and to come back to the point that I'm trying to sort of belabor um, is that Dairy is used by a lot of people, and it's more than just a fun food. There's the cheese, and there's the ice cream, and there's the um, the butter is the least offending, of course. Um, and there's the milk. You know, everything comes from milk, of course. Everything comes from a cow. So it is actually sought after food to have if you're a weightlifter, because insulin is a kind of a growth hormone as well. It's not just about blood sugar. It's, it's uh, anabolic. So you've heard about anabolic steroids. It's not quite that severe, but it's pretty, it's pro-growth. And so uh, whey protein in particular. And so you, if you've gone to the gym, you go all the, uh, the muscle heads there are, you know, they're making sure they take their whey at the particular times and they're very whey oriented and they have their other supplements. So what I'm saying is that low glycemic diet that was recommended for those who had blood sugar issues had to be qualified you had to look at the bigger picture, and the bigger picture was looking at the insulin, not just so much the glucose levels. So I hope, you, hope you're hope you getting that. That's a very important distinction to make. So what were some of the other things that we would have done, and still are relevant today, to helping somebody achieve higher insulin uh, sensitivity, lower insulin resistance, higher insulin sensitivity? One would be, and it comes up again and again and again, is inositol. There's various types of inositol, and technically inositol is not a required nutrient to have. It's a related B vitamin, but it is not a B vitamin. And we basically make our own inositol. However, they find, and there's been a number of studies, and there are two different types of inositol, for the record, is uh, D-chiro inositol and myo inositol. They're obviously very related. They're um, stereoisomers of each other, if that helps you. They're kind of mirror images, but they both are required. And you'll hear me shuffling some pages, by the way, as we go through this talk today, because I have to reference some of these things. This is what docs do. You don't have it. You don't carry it all around in your head or haven't met, met one that does yet, but it provides for interesting conversation. So inositol 
back then, now we're talking 20 years ago, it was one of the things, the top choice you would give to those conditions that you were pretty sure were associated with just called dysglycemia. Remember that? You, you wouldn't have known if it was hyperinsulinemia, hyperinsulinemia because you hadn't tested for that, and really nobody had tested for that. It was kind of just presumed something that happened back there. This person probably had uh, elevated uh, insulin. So inositol were one of the things that uh, basically helped you regain a certain insulin sensitivity. So that means you'd use less insulin to keep down a particular level of glucose. That's a big deal. So that was there 20 years ago. So all the arrows are pointing towards blood sugar control, but more than blood sugar control, which is glucose, you know, it's the insulin control. It's a getting down, making the rest of the body relax, come down and relax and just use a minimal amount of insulin. That's the idea of using just a drop of insulin here and there when you need it. And perhaps you might not even need it at all if you can regulate your own blood glucose on a regular basis. So there's a number of studies. Let me read 44 obese women with PCOS are randomly assigned to receive a double blind fashion, d inositol and a 55% reduction in the mean serum free testosterone concentration compared to those who weren't taking it. Significantly more women ovulated due to the d So that's interesting. So not only did this, did inositol, this particular form, d inositol, uh, help with insulin sensitivity, but remember I said that one of the problems about too much insulin, hyperinsulinemia, is that it drove up androgens, so it drove up the male hormones, testosterone, DHEA, and so on, and this brought those down. So independently, in essence, it worked on two levels, and insulin does a lot of things. I'm not going to pretend I know, and I don't think anybody knows all the things that insulin does. It's a hormone, and therefore it acts with a lot of other hormones. Blood sugar is just kind of the common story we tell and we relate to. So it's a driver of uh, testosterone. So it brought down the testosterone and started sensitizing towards insulin sensitivity. Okay, so what, what would the myo-inositol do? How's, how's that to confuse you a little bit? Hope you find this interesting. So myo-inositol, which is more commonly just known as inositol, say two grams a day of myo-inositol, twice a day for three to six months, decreased insulin resistance, lowered serum testosterone levels, improved menstrual, menstrual irregularities, improved ovarian function. Pregnancy rate was relatively high in two uncontrolled trials. Uh, I won't go on and on, but now you're getting the point there. So this has actually been studied. It's been studied a lot. And so it would be the top of the list. After that would be vitamin D. Vitamin D is such a basic test you should be getting for everybody, man, woman, child. You should get your vitamin D levels taste tested. And that would be vitamin B. 25-OH, that's the test you need to ask for. So vitamin D, I want to get my vitamin D test. And so you either can say it's 25-hydroxy vitamin D or 25-OH vitamin D. And you basically, there's a range there. So make sure you're within the ranges. But vitamin D should be tested. Vitamin D deficiency is actually very common. I would say two-thirds of my practice were low in vitamin D. It was just part of the basic blood work. It, it was so unextraordinary and so common that you put it into your basic blood work when they came back for their quarterly reviews, or whatever you were working on, and you followed it. That is an independent factor, made a difference. We're following the PCOS case, but made a difference in pretty much across the boards.
whether you're following multiple sclerosis, it's a big deal. After that, chromium. Chromium basically potentiates the action of insulin. We'll just say it helps with insulin sensitivity. Don't want to get into too much details. NAC, N-acetylcysteine. N-acetylcysteine is one of these things that, uh, it's one of the supplements we keep around the house because it's a precursor for glutathione. I believe I don't have much alcohol. Uh, my wife seems to think that I do, so we have a little, <laughs> little difference there. She drinks none at all, and I have maybe my glass or two of wine. Anyway, let's say I had a headache from alcohol. This, this just is what I thought of. What would I do? Or if I thought I was going to have uh, a headache from alcohol the next day, and then I would take NAC, N-acetylcysteine, and that would, uh, it does a lot of things, uh, but primarily look at it as it's a big antioxidant, precursor of big antioxidant. It also helps, clears up the lungs. Uh, we use it a lot in environmental medicine. After that, carnitine. Carnitine may sound rather esoteric to you, but this is one of the big issues between vegans or vegetarians, those who just do not want to eat meat of any sort or any animal products, and in the problems that they would have. You know, um, I'm not going to say which is better. I certainly, for myself, believe that uh, I was a vegetarian for about seven years from medical school, and I got to see how I became anemic. Now, I could say maybe I wasn't the perfect vegetarian or vegan. Maybe I really needed to study how to do that better. That's always the possibility. I wasn't like I wasn't a good enough student. And so uh, I got to see in my documentation of myself that it wasn't working for me. And there was a, a interesting series of books at the time called Eat Right for Your Type, Eat Right for Your Blood Type by Peter Diodamo. And I followed what was right for my blood type, and uh, it didn't work out for me. That's just me. So what I'm finding now, and I've been zero carbs since January, and certainly a ketogenic diet for the previous four years, that a lot has changed dramatically for me. So back to carnitine. Why is carnitine? Carnitine is something you will not get very much of on a, a vegan or vegetarian diet. Carnitine comes primarily from, you can guess it, from a carnivore, so all your meats and your proteins. Ideally, you can say that it comes from some uh, vegetables, so a little bit in asparagus, somewhat in beets, I believe, but it is minuscule. It is like a, a point of a point of a point. So consequently, vegetarians have uh, usually a carnitine deficiency, something you can ask your doctor to be tested by. So if you are so deficient, uh, you'll probably have an unusual lipid panel, probably high, would be my guess. But so the problem is the carnitine actually takes your fat into the mitochondria to be burned. So if you were converting, if you were a vegan trying to eat a uh, low-carb, high-fat, you know, moderate protein diet, which is hard to do, it's a lot of calculation, it would take a lot of work, that you would probably be deficient in carnitine, and that would mean that even your fat would have a hard time. You might be able to make um, some ketones, but you wouldn't be able to take them into your mitochondria to be burned. There's a thing called a carnitine shuffle, sh shuttle. Sorry, one's a dance and the other's a bus. Uh, carnitine shuttle that is what this does. And so taking in fats to the mitochondria to be burned is what this is about, and you wouldn't be able to do that. So uh, it's a big deal. So this was given as a supplement to women PCOS primarily, as I say, complained of infertility, and it had positive results. So what we're saying is these, these supplements given then are still pointing in the same direction of get the blood sugar 
you know, get the get, use fat as a source of energy for one. Get the blood sugar down, get the glucose down, get the insulin down. Next one is CoQ10. CoQ10 also has to do with mitochondria. It was anytime there was a muscle problem, whether it's whether the heart congestive heart failure or uh, various sorts of uh, cardiopulmonary, if you gave people CoQ10, things would stabilize. It's pretty much the one of the few vital nutrients for the for anything that has to do with muscle and mitochondria. It was a, it's a big, big deal. Fish oil. Fish oil is pretty self-evident. What we're talking about are why that is, is that most people are deficient in the essential fatty acids, which are omega-3s primarily. Some omega-6s, but omega-3s is really what the conversation is about, EPA and DHA. And without them, you, let's say, don't function properly. You don't have the appropriate fats. You'll have a number of deficiencies. So fish oils. So it speaks to the diet. Selenium. What's interesting about selenium is that selenium and iodine and fish come from what they call a shoreline diet. And part of the belief in evolution of humans was that they evolved along the shoreline because it was a fatty a fatty place to be. And, and there's a book by Dr. Stephen Kinane called uh, Survival of the Fattest. And it wasn't until we had high fats, specifically uh, EPA and DHA, selenium and iodine in reliable, consistent sources, resources, did we begin to evolve. So pretty big, eh? So that's pretty much the short list of supplements you would give for PCOS and why you would give them. So there's an overlap of intention. And when you throw in that they also gave metformin, that was kind of a giveaway, don't you think? But the last thing I wanted to broach on this is that Still people, for instance, we're, I'm finishing up a coaching group of 10 people and one woman, one woman was very overweight and her concern was uh, she didn't have a, a formal diagnosis of PCOS, but she was uh, infertile or they couldn't conceive, a better way to say that. And so the, her motivation for learning keto, and she didn't last, she only lasted about three or four weeks and uh, had other life pressures to pull her away. But if I was a physician today, I told you I'd be using keto on top. These supplements would still be things I would consider. Uh, she would be monitored. But apart from diet and supplements, and you can throw in exercise as well, that is a big uh, insulin sensitizer improvement. I'm not going to say the, ins- uh, the exercise part for a whole, letter, whole later podcast. But I will inject an environmental aspect of this. Um, we do live in a polluted world, and so we can't just talk about, you know, in the Paleolithic era, in uh, modern, well, Paleolithic era, there really wasn't much in terms of pollution. There are other issues, no doubt. It was about finding the right food. But right now, our era, whatever our era is going to be called, is a polluted era. And for us to sort of say, it's just the food that you eat, we can say, yeah, it's the food you eat, and also is how polluted or not polluted, or how organic is this food that you're about to eat? So I'm not the having organic food. We're going to get into this later too. Having organic over inorganic, can't say it that way. Having organic over contaminated, meaning foods that use pesticides, is a huge difference. The association with pesticides, on a per pesticide basis or herbicide basis, on certain neurological diseases and and um, autoimmune diseases is huge. It's a topic in itself, but in that realm of what. And so that's why you should use organic and 
feel free to look at Environmental Working Group online and simply what they say is the dirty dozen, take the top 12 most contaminated is the word they use, most heavily pesticided veggies, if you do have veggies, you know, just have those, you know, get organic of the top 12 if you have to, get organic of everything, but certainly of the top 12 of the dirtiest. So in the area of environmental medicine, what is strongly associated with polys, with PCOS is bisphenol A. Bisphenol A. So bisphenol A is the thing that comes in plastics. And and I'm just going to read through. I think it's, uh, I've known about this for 15 or 20 years. And for anybody who's read uh, Our Stolen Future by Theo Colburn, it's a huge issue. Uh, she went into bisphenol A, PCBs, phthalates. So bisphenol A is used to make resins and polycarbonate plastics. It is found in plastic storage and heating containers and is used to line metal cans. BPA, bisphenol A, leaches from food and beverage containers under conditions of normal use and has been found in indoor air. The adverse effects of this compound appear to be due to an interaction with hormones, including thyroid hormone, estrogens, androgen hormones, Evidence from animal studies suggests that exposure to BPA during pregnancy could play a role in the development of PCOS in a female offspring. Serum concentrations of PBA were higher in women with PCOS than in the controls. These findings raise the possibility that avoiding exposure to BPA could be useful for preventing and treating PCOS. So, that's done. There's studies out there, and I can read the number of studies that you can go read, but not going to do that. Maybe I'll put it in the um, podcast notes. But this opens the door to the whole issue of what they call xenoestrogens. That is a lot of plastic, a lot of plastic compounds like bisphenol A, and a number of pesticides or what they call xenoestrogens. They get in the way. They confuse the body. They're now in your blood because you've eaten the thing that it was wrapped in. You breathe the air that it was in. Mostly it comes through food, by the way. Food, a little bit of water, less so air. And so you're getting the xenoestrogens into your system, and your body gets a little confused. So you're you're generally not as strong as estrogens, but one of the problems is that they will block, they can link to the estrogen receptor, not cause the subsequent changes that a real estrogen would do, but it can block that receptor from a real estrogen coming in to do what it was supposed to do. That that spot's taken. So xenoestrogens provide a problem to a lot of sex hormones, a lot of hormones in general, but a lot of sex hormones. It's associated with uh, hypotestosteronism in men and uh, a lot of uh, hormonal situations with women especially around the issue of fertility and menopause and PMS, etc. So I wanted to cover that. PCOS, I think, is very important. Uh, the hyperinsulinemia is very important. There's ways to address it. Certainly a ketogenic diet is the number one way. After that, you have some supplements. After that, you have at least one environmental concern. Um, and I hope you, if this is something you're thinking about, this is very important for you to think about. So to switch to the men's side, you know, men are out there equally polluted, so to say. Um, but for some reason, hypo, low testosterone 
ism isn't studied as much, or you would think there would be an equivalent PCOS diagnosis for men, but there is not. And there's a little bit of, and it's, and the research is not as clean with this. And um, what I say is that, as I mentioned with women, one of the things was male pattern, pattern baldness happens with PCOS because they have elevated androgens. Well, in men, when you have hyperinsulinemia, you get pretty much the same set of symptoms. They have higher incidence of male pattern baldness, whether it is genetic or not. Genetic is a predisposition, and you can see, especially if your father has it, the, the sons will probably have it. But in addition, in addition to that, it was elevated insulin. And so it's a measurable difference to have. So that was one of the things that, especially with kids growing up, uh, men growing up, they're worried about being bald, and eventually they accept it at some point. But when I say the research is a little unclean, it's because they have, there is enough decent research that associates the, the men's situations are usually uh, erectile dysfunction, ED, uh, BPH, and uh, baldness, and then you can go after BPH to prostate cancer. So those are kind of the men's concerns. And um, erectile dysfunction is not a libido issue. It's usually a coronary issue. That is, it's usually about the plumbing, as I would say, for uh, the endocrinologist. And, um, you know, uh, having coronary issues or heart issues or arterial issues so that your arteries are more progressively clogged with with um, with hyperinsulinemia, by the way. So you, that, the number one association for diabetes, by the way, is coronary or cardiovascular um, problems. Okay, so after diabetes, diabetes covers, that, that is, causes um, cardiovascular issues. And after that, you're more prone to autoimmune and various cancers. But you can go from diabetes and prediabetes to uh, cardiovascular issues very, very directly. So it's interesting that the medications used for erectile dysfunction or what they call are the same medications that were previously used for uh, cardiopulmonary. They were meant to open up the to vasodilate the coronary arteries. Makes sense, right? If they're partially closed, anything that can open them up a little bit is a good thing. So that was the the Viagra. So Viagra is what they call a phosphodiesterase inhibitor. So it expands, it opens up the plumbing. Well, it happened to be, they're working on the heart. That medication was then discovered that it actually had a secondary effect. And that secondary effect was that it gave men's arteries to open up and they could get erections. So what I'm saying is the association between erectile dysfunction and cardiovascular issues are direct. And so that's why medications that work for one work for the other. Okay, so there is also very common to, and it's related to blood sugar issues, insulin issues, and that is too low hypotestosterone image, uh, hypotestosteronemia. And so the hypotestosteronemia comes from the obesity and it's kind of a bi-directional sort of thing. And as one gets heavier, and we're talking about, there's and there's two different kinds of fats. You have uh, subcutaneous fat, which is right under your skin, and then you have visceral fat, which is basically under your 
your your belly muscles, but those big pot bellies that that uh, people get that's visceral fat. So the association of visceral fat to low testosterone, the correlation is there very strongly, and they're not quite sure which causes which because if you give a man who is obese testosterone because his testosterone is low, he will start to lose weight. That's a good thing. He'll start to come back and feel great. And you've totally changed his life. And it's, the, it's, it's one of those situations in the, which the one pill has totally changed this person's life. You'll feel like a savior and he'll love you for life and send everyone else to you. However, um, as one starts to become obese, that directly affects you know, their testosterone and their testosterone and how that affects, it's really interesting. So they're growing visceral fat because fat cells also give out leptin and other hormones as well and inflammatory markers, that that actually, they believe, affects your hypothalamus and your pituitary. So it actually has a entire body reaction. It is now starting to affect a number of hormones, the visceral fat, at the central at the central depot of your whole uh, endocrinology of all your hormones. And so it starts to affect it there. So what you have is obesity drives low testosterone by the brain, we'll call it, by the hypothalamus and the pituitary. And yet, if that obesity was driven by, by hyperinsulinemia, what we've just been talking about with PCOS and a little bit with men, is that there's research there that well, wait a minute, that drives up androgen factors, testosterone being one and what I've already named out. So it's a little bit, um, both can happen. So obese men are not necessarily have a lot of testosterone. In fact, they may well have just the opposite. And so their ED may well be about libido because their testosterone is low. Whereas those with hyperinsulinemia may well be about a cardiovascular result in their ED or uh, intimacy issues, you might say. So anyway, I thought it would be worth discussing this, saying that uh, keto has an incredible inroad to all these situations of whether it's weight loss, whether it's hormonal rebalancing, whether it's insulin sensitivity. And I threw in a little bit of environmental medicine. So with that, I'm going to close for today and encourage you, don't know where you are in your journey in the keto, but I would at least sincerely thinking about starting and measuring your, your ketones and your glucose readings, get familiar with that. It is such a luxury and such a privilege to be able to do that now. And yet it's just common. We all can do it. Well, 20 years ago, it wasn't that common. You, everybody had their little glucometers and that was good, but they didn't have ketometers. They had no idea how to measure ketones. That was, you had to go in and get a blood work and, and, and go through all that, get the uh, requisite from the doc and then go to the, the lab to get it done and then wait your four or six weeks for the doctor to call you. So it was pretty hard to uh, really achieve this. Right now, you can do it in your own kitchen, living room, wherever you, or bathroom, wherever you do your, your finger pricks. And I think it's just fascinating and, and it's such a healthy door to open. So my call to action in your life is to get started. You know, think about this, join a Facebook group if that's what you have to do. We have Keto Naturopath. There's a, I'm sure there's other good ones out there. But my message is always the same. My coaching is exactly the same. It's rather tedious, in fact. I, I 
cow people in for the first four weeks of simply taking measurements and getting their macros in line. And then we change for the second four weeks and we get into slightly more sophisticated conversations. But, you know, it's doing the work up front. So thank you for today. Hope you got something out of it. Till next time. Thanks for listening. For anybody who has any questions, feel free to contact me on our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Same name as our podcast. I'm open to any questions and we plod through the good and the bad, the difficult and the easy week after week.